Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and I'm joined in the studio today, as ever, or as as usual, uh, my with uh, by my movie reviewing buddy, Alan Appel, a uh, staff reporter for the New Haven Independent. Hi, Tom. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Alan. Ooh, and if you could pull, yeah, pull that mic nice up and close. So today will be uh, a review-only episode of the show, and we will be talking about two new releases. Uh, I believe both are still currently playing at the theater in downtown New Haven, but uh, I think they had a pretty broad release, so you should be able to find them. Uh, one is Deborah Granick's new movie, Leave No Trace, uh, about a father and daughter uh, living or trying to live off the grid in Forest Park uh, in the kind of large natural park in the middle of Portland, Oregon. And also Three Identical Strangers, Chris Wardle's truly... Uh, remarkable and uh, twist, plentiful um, documentary about three brothers in early 1980s New York City. Uh, First, let's talk a little bit about Leave No Trace. So Leave No Trace, uh, directed by Deborah Granick, her first movie since Winter's Bone, uh, which I'm not sure if you saw, came out about uh, maybe 10 years ago. It was uh, Jennifer Lawrence's break breakout movie uh, before she was in the Hunger Games movies, uh, Jennifer Lawrence being one of the kind of bigger young actresses working today. And it took place in the Ozark Mountains in Arkansas. Uh, and it was a very uh, kind of culturally specific, very gritty, uh, kind of a neo-noir, but Lawrence plays uh, a young woman seeking to, there's some crime that needs to be solved. But it's really, a again, a very specific look at the the culture, the remote and uh, kind of defiantly independent uh, almost vigilante culture in uh, the Ozark Mountains in Arkansas. And I think that that is a, um, it's kind of a logical step to the other end of the country where she winds up working in Leave No Trace uh, in Portland, because even though Portland's a much bigger city uh, than what she described, uh, what she filmed in Winter's Bone, she's not looking at the Portland of uh, kind of young, tattooed, and uh, ear pierced coffee drinkers or whatever it is that is the stereotype of, of Portland and other uh, kind of yuppier cities in the Pacific Northwest. She's looking at a father played by Ben Foster, uh, recently returned from presumably Afghanistan, an ex-Marine suffering with PTSD, living in Forest Park in, in the middle of the wilderness of the city. Um, so maybe first, Alan, before we kind of dive into more of the plot, what do you think of Leave No Trace? Well, I, I really, I really found it, um, I really found it gripping, um, and it put me in mind of uh, maybe something I've I've said here on the show before. But uh, once I was sitting in a in a theater looking at a rehearsal, actually of a little play that I had done, or d- during a break, and the and the, the woman said to me, uh, who was uh, kind of a, a theater professional, uh, and I was just sort of beginning to <clears throat> write plays and didn't quite understand them. We were talking about the difference between plays and movies, and she said, if you have something to say, you should write a play. If you have something to show, you should make a movie. So Leave No Trace is all about just really beautiful pictures and large, interesting faces and a relationship that you just get drawn into. So much of the movie is um, verbally silent um, and... um, uh, you know, uh, just visually gripping, and um, and that relationship, which is really not explored in depth. You really don't know what happened to this guy. You don't quite know how she, how this girl got to be sixteen and having this relationship with her father that's almost like a a wife uh, taking care of him because he's so damaged. There's one oblique reference to the farm that they lost, 
as another oblique reference to uh, what's your favorite color? Uh, ben Foster asks uh, the the daughter whom he calls Tom. It's wonderful because her real name is Thomasina. I forget her last the name. The actress is Thomasine McKenzie. So yeah. I'm not sure if she has right. a last name in the context of the movie as well. But also that conversation leads to an allusion to a mother who's either it was, left or, y- or yes. passed away. Yellow is her favorite color. And what was my mother's favorite color? And so Ben Foster waits about 20 minutes and then he says, <laughs> yellow. So that's the movie. So so I would <laughs> I would agree that not a lot of background on these characters is given. But I would say the relationship between the two is uh, is in great detail explored but through what is shown as opposed to what is said as you were just describing that's right, that's um, right. i think that uh, probably the one of the more uh, impactful lines of the movie for me one of the few lines uh is so this teenage daughter who is kind of growing both physically and metaphorically growing restless uh in her uh kind of in her teenage years, recognizing that she is different from her father. And she tells him that the same thing that is wrong with him is not wrong with her. But that happens three quarters of the way through the film. It does. It happens three quarters of the way through the film, but you can see the, the, the trajectory towards that revelation from really from, from the opening and the opening scene where we see these two in forest park, uh, living as off the grid as they can. Uh, they've fashioned a, a tent that's completely camouflaged into the wilderness. They're making their own food using a uh, kind of a contraption of aluminum foil. And I don't know, they're without any fire, without using any uh, propane they're trying to. Right. So it's not like they're, they're living only with, you know, non man-made substances, but they have figured out a way as dictated by the father who is still the provider because he's the one receiving the veteran benefits. Uh, they figured out a way to live almost completely removed from all society. But if do you remember really one of the first things she says to him in the movie is, you know, I'm growing hungry. And he says something like you're, or maybe it's the other way around, but she says, I'm growing hungry. And he says, you're growing period. And it's true. I mean, she is becoming a more, she's becoming more of a person, not just a dependent on him, not just an extension of him. And this movie really tracks her, her kind of growing need to to become someone different from her father in both his his interests, his talents, and also his various uh, neuroses or, or psychoses. Right, but that that conflict is even is even deeper because w- what is going on there is that in his own um, in, in his own um, silent, almost aphasic way, he understands that what her growth means is that she'll have to leave him, and from her perspective. Um, her leaving him, um, given her with her with her in- increasing understanding of the situation, she knows that if she leaves him, which she has to do for her own sake on some level, uh, she might imperil him and cause his death because uh, he's vaguely suicidal. Uh, his PTSD is so advanced. Um, but the form it takes is they're talking about these issues of. Um, and needing to think their own thoughts and being off the grid. And one of the remarkable things about this movie is that um, sort of unlike your, your description isn't quite accurate. They live in the middle of this park, but they're also a kind of satellite branch of uh, uh, a community of homeless people. A lot of them vets. At least they belong to that economy. That's tangentially. Right. Yeah. And one of the really interesting and uh, intriguing early bits in the film is they practice drills like Marine drills in order to uh, dive in the brush in case rangers are coming. 
and she makes a mistake because, uh, I don't know, her blue or her socks or her yellow jacket is revealed and they have to do it again. And in fact, they, when they, they, do get, um, they do get found and picked up, which is the first pivot in the film, and uh, then we meet very briefly some of the other people in the in in the in the larger um, uh, compound, and they they blame uh, Ben Foster and his daughter. But they say you got burned, and then the next thing we see is um, the big bucket of uh, equipment destroying the encampment. So I I love the the restlessness of this movie. It follows a somewhat similar structure to a movie called Lean on Pete that came out earlier this year. Oddly enough, also taking place in the Pacific Northwest about a, a young boy living outside of Portland, a pre-ramshackle situation, develops a relationship with a racing horse and winds up walking with the horse about 2,000 miles east uh, through Oregon and through Idaho and I think through Montana. Um, this This movie... There seems to be a um, a recognizable narrative arc in terms of being off the grid, being found, being forced to acclimate or struggling to acclimate. But this movie doesn't quite follow that in that they never they never really stay put in one particular place. Uh, maybe un- until the end, when when the when you can see the the fissure between father and daughter becoming a bit more permanent. But you know the the home that they are temporarily in in the on the Christmas tree farm. Is only is just another stopping point for what winds up being an even further excursion into like into the wilderness, into anonymity afterwards. I want to ask you: there are a number of well, almost every encounter that these two have with society writ large, whether it's a, a social worker or a trucker who offers to give them a ride, involves someone asking the two of them if the father is abusing the daughter. And the, it's pretty strongly implied that they're concerned that he's sexually abusing this young woman, that he, you know, he may be, maybe he's a father, maybe he's an older man who's just kind of run away with this younger woman. Um, and I thought, you know, clearly this, at least from what we're presented with the movie, he's not doing that. He seems to be, you know, a, a caring and non-abusive parent in that way. But but on the flip side, he does seem to be abusing her in a certain way by forcing her to live completely removed from any type of socialization that she so clearly longs for and responds to. Did you see this as an abusive relationship between father and daughter in the way that some of the figures of society were implying or concerned about in their encounters with her? Or is it not as simple as that? I don't. I don't think it's quite as simple as that, but I think it's actually deftly handled uh, the way the social worker uh, in the 15th or 16th of the uh, her roster of questions, she asks, has he ever touched your body in an inappropriate way? And the trucker asks the right questions. But uh, is it a form of abuse that, um, I don't know. I mean, he this guy, this guy um, I think on some level, uh, he knows he has to give her up, but I think he... I think he feels on on some level that he's actually teaching her stuff that is going to be useful. That it's uh, that it's yeah yeah you know and we 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 see the fact that she gets interested in a rabbit that she finds, and the rabbit belongs to a you know a kid her own age, a boy her own age, and that's really you know the the beginning of her wanting to connect to a world outside of her dad. But her her affection for her father and her need to take care of him why that's the case, how she's become so sophisticated, such a reader above her grade level, all that kind of stuff, and what their relationship actually um, is and how it came about and 
how recently uh, did the mother die and did the mother's death who loved the color yellow also did that trigger a kind of valley of the PTSD I mean it's true this uh, this movie shows their relationship and also in the process actually shows um, you know water dripping from uh, leaves and spider webs it's really gorgeously filmed it actually put me in mind Tom of some movie we talked about uh, I think towards the beginning when deep focus was being established it was a movie about a tracker, uh, uh, I think, on an Indian reservation. Ah, Wind River. Wind, yes. Wind River. Wind River. Yes. Right. Yeah. And it and it's about also set in, I believe, the the Northwest. Right. Maybe and, Wyoming. Yes, and and somebody is trying to figure out who the killer is of this remarkable young uh, Native American woman, but it also is in love with showing the the land. I mean, it's. You know, it's it's almost a kind of Lewis and Clark genre of American cinema to show these these vast uh, 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 panoramas and and um, uh, and certainly there is a def- there's a defining uh, kind of natural element that that Deborah Granick is interested in showing in in these two people's lives, and that is the the forest and in particular the the greenery of everything is almost. Uh, like suffocatingly green. This isn't the like barren, snowy mountains no. of of the Indian Reservation in Wyoming, but instead they are. It's kind of like you know it could be um, apocalypse now level going into the into the jungle. Like every everywhere you turn is is very earthy, green and brown. And you know, without saying exactly what the final shot of the movie, I think she manages to show beautifully how how Ben Foster's character disappears into this this wilderness or longs to disappear into this wilderness at the end there are a lot of kind of helicopter or very high angle shots that show this just unending expanse of canopy um, that provides some kind of cover for two people who really feel like they can't live without that protection of well right the trees Uh, the suggestion is that is that there's something about um there's something about the forest that's healing it's far more healing than it is uh, threatening. You know, I, I do have a I do have a bone to pick with with the film, and and um, you know, uh, as you already know, or certainly will know when you begin to cover, I think homeless encampments in New Haven as a reporter, which you probably already have. Every single time that these people um, are um, found out and then delivered into the hands of uh, the social service agencies. They get that. Not only did they get the help they want, they get it immediately, and they get it it's terrific. It's you know they just have that was to, a remarkable element of this movie. That, I do wonder it, if that's something it, specific to Portland and their. It's a little unrealistic, yeah. seems to me, because you know, and also they're veterans, so it, it's perhaps that the social services provided to these homeless maybe. veterans is expedited because of that status. But right. I also noted how like wow they went straight to a home like they have this home after. And it's a trailer, and yeah. he gets to work with trees, and uh, he eventually will be able to work with uh, with uh, animals, which he loves. Right. There's a scene in which he goes nose-to-nose with a horse, and he somehow communicates with the horse the way he communicates with his daughter. He just, um, he's just got a problem with um, not, for example, ever wanting a phone. He won't accept the phone the social worker gives him, which he's going to need in order to enroll his daughter in school. I mean, these are all very uh, interesting things but i i sort of i don't know what i learned from this movie. well i would say uh you know we've spoken about a number of movies that maybe try to make a broader statement about america about something you know quintessentially and uniquely american if you go back to 
the founder that uh oh, the movie about ray Kroc, the founder of mcdonald's and oh, here we yeah. have this larger than life charlatan entrepreneur who steals an idea and becomes wildly successful because of his uh way of marketing it. and also even you know the catcher was a spy we are a conversation about you know baseball being a quintessentially american experience for immigrants looking to assimilate especially jewish uh, immigrants looking to assimilate into american culture i think that this movie gets at something that is um a pretty you know going all the way back to like the thoreau and emersonian kind of self-reliance of that kind of 1840s 1850s uh, american transcendental movement but the idea that a true american lives completely independently of any type of uh, social service or dependence on anyone but his own, you know, wiles. And I think this, you know, it's, yes, this is a, a talented and self-sufficient person, but it's an incredibly isolating and troubling existence. Too. That's that's right. And actually, it's ac- actually the, 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 uh, the kind of uh, the cinematic quotations that come to my mind are people like uh, Jeremiah, Robert Redford as Jeremiah Johnson, or even more recently, Leonardo DiCaprio in The Revenant, which mm-hmm. is like four hours of fighting grizzly bears and being driven down. No, uh, but no, whereas those people are a kind of pure heroes, they're going where nobody else has gone before. They're paving the way for others to come, and they're and in the process, they're preserving the integrity of their isolation. This is this is you know um, this is the mental illness flip side yeah. of that myth, and. Um, it, she visually there's nothing glamorous about the life that they're living no and that's that's what makes that's what that's what's that the the great visual contradiction here it's as beautiful as jim bridger in the wilderness but but it's not it's the opposite it's pe- desperate people it's a mental illness there's potential this and and um uh, i think that's that's the kind of uh, vein she's mining uh, well, I'd certainly recommend checking out Leave No Trace. It sounds like uh, you responded well to it, too. Um, so let's uh, first, I'm going to say you're listening to Deep Focus on WNHHLP, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and I'm talking with Alan Appel about two recent releases. Let's move over to uh, to three identical strangers. We'll see. I, I haven't come up with a transition line yet, but maybe we'll find some th- uh, through line between uh, the quintessentially American isolation of Leave No Trace and then... Uh, I don't know, the lost in the masses of people in New York City. Uh, I don't know. We, we, I've got to work on that transition. I but, got one for you. <laughs> all right. So three, Maybe. you want me to set up the movie or do you want to go straight to the No, trip? set up the movie, okay. please. So this is a movie that I have uh, spoiled to every to my girlfriend, to every single one of my family members, to really anyone who will spend five minutes with me. I will say, <laughs> you can't, you won't believe the movie that I just saw. And, you know, it's never fun to listen to someone just talk enthusiastically about every plot detail in a movie. But this movie is worthy of such obsession because the story is just so mind-cracking. It is about... Uh, okay, so, well, maybe the best way to describe it is how it begins with 19-year-old Bobby Shaffron. Uh, who grew up in... Docu- documentary, documentary. Like, this is a documentary, a uh, CNN-produced documentary, and it feels like, you know, this is a... Formally, it's a pretty straightforward talking head, archival footage, um, you know, ma- you know main, main news investigation. This isn't but, an but experimental... There, but there are, there are dramatizations. There are dramatizations as well. But so we begin with Bobby Schaffer present day, remembering when he was 19, went up from his home in Scarsdale to... Uh, Sullivan County Community College or somewhere upstate New York for his first day of school, everyone comes up and greets him and hugs him and kisses him on the lips and says they're so happy to see him. 
he's completely confused because he's never been to this place before. How can every how how can a first day uh, be so positive for anyone uh, at college? And then he finds out that everyone thinks that he is not Bobby, but someone named Eddie. And lo and behold, after a uh, phone call and a frantic drive back to New York City, he finds out that he has a an identical twin brother whom he was separated from at birth. Uh, they do the press circuit. It's an incredible story. The media go crazy for these two brothers who are these two young, you know, very curly haired, muscular, attractive young men. Uh, it winds up that oh, they're, they're, and they're not on alone. The, on, the, on the cover they're on the of the cover Daily of New York News. Post, Daily News. And, News. And they milk the publicity for all they can. And they're, the two know, of them. And the way the movie presents it and the way the, you know, Bobby remembers it is that, you know, these are two young men having like the time of their lives because they've suddenly discovered another one of themselves. Uh, and now they're on the front of every newspaper in New York. It winds up that, you know, some kid in Long Island looking at the the post of the Daily News one day, one day uh, realizes that he is the third. So there are three identical triplet brothers who are separated at birth, placed with a uh, one with a working class first generation immigrant family in Long Island, one with a middle class family uh, parents or teachers in uh, in New York City, and then the other with a upper class doctor in Scarsdale, and all, all within a hundred miles of all each other, all within hundred miles, all placed by the same adoption agency, and and the and the adopting family is not given any information of, about any of their history. So you can sense my excitement, and even just relating to the yeah. what was this is related in the preview. So why also, are you so excited about this, <laughs> it's Tom? Just such an incredible story. So we'll actually we'll get to that in a second. But <laughs> listeners, be forewarned: there's no way that I'm going to be able to withhold any any plot twists in this movie. So if you don't want to know what happens in the movie Three Identical Strangers beyond what I just said, which is covered in the preview, you probably want to stop and then listen again when you've seen the movie. But Alan, I think that's given us free reign to say whatever we want about Three Identical that's Strangers. That's right. So, um, well, first, are you as excited about this movie as I am? Yeah, I found I found it. I or really found the it. story. I mean, I thought the movie was good, but the story I found incredible. Well, it's, uh, yeah, it's, I actually saw it twice because uh, I, 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 I didn't tell everybody I knew, but I I insisted that my wife go to see the movie, so we saw it. We saw I saw it twice, and um, uh, which uh, it was an interesting experience because uh, I, I I was quite turned off actually to the first twenty or thirty minutes of the film the first time I saw it, but um, uh, I I. I um, did not have that experience the second time. I don't know why I was turned off to it. I I think it's peculiar to me, um, but um, I'm wondering here. But I I think it I think it really um, uh, you know it, it people are interested in in twins. I, my wife needed to see it because I remember she had read a New Yorker article. It wasn't so much about twins, um, but it was about a mother reconnecting with her daughter uh uh this new yorker piece and um so i i think that there's something just you know you ask why i'm so excited about the story i mean it's um it's that same uh you know tabloid adrenaline rush of like any sensational feel-good story that you see or or even lurid stories slapped on you know in the front of something like a new york daily news or new york post where you just look at it and you and you say i can't believe that you know these three brothers who are literally you know carbon copies of one another found themselves and and to the i mean to 
this movie's credit and unfortunately to the <clears throat> the detriment of these brothers this the fascinating elements of these story does not stop you know it almost like would have been enough if it if just these three you know there's there's a magic almost a fairy tale magic to these three who look exactly the same and act exactly the same um being reunited but of course this story is set not in the world of disney but in the world of new york city uh where uh, these three were separated for a very specific and deliberate reason, which was because they were part of a uh, decades-long psychological study uh, uh, created by a Columbia psychiatrist and survivor of the Holocaust who was interested in in researching the effects of nature versus nurture, this idea That's of right. what what is right. it that truly determines how any individual life turns out. Is it their biology their their dna or is it how they are brought up i mean i think the sensible explanation is that it's always some combination of the two but i guess well, that's where the movie comes down but it's so interesting because i i think the reason i was turned off the first time i saw it uh is 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 uh, kind of the obverse of what you were saying because uh, bobby shaffron i uh, the the one of the triplets i think who who came who was placed in the more well-to-do family this uh he became the son of a doctor he sits down in front of the camera and the very first thing out of his mouth is what I'm about to tell you is the most incredible thing that has ever happened in the universe from the beginning of time and for the entire future. And I wouldn't believe it myself, but it's true. Now I, as maybe somebody who tries to write stories myself, I get turned off when somebody says this is incredible, but sure. true. And, 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 and in fact, for the first half of the movie, everybody who talks about it, every word out of their mouth is it was just incredible. You wouldn't believe it. So I, I, I think I was turned off by the, by the, by the degree of uh, a universal um, uh, um, acclaim about what happened. Because I don't know. It just seems to me that um, uh, I, I've been in New York City taking the subway just as a guy going to school up on the Upper West Side, Columbia. And I remember there was some person uh, whom I barely knew from college or from work and I saw this person on 116th Street when I took the train. And then when I got out or go, going to lunch at Midtown, I saw this person for the, a second time. And then I saw the person at the end of the day when I was going home. Now, what are the odds that there'll be a person that you would, you know. So these things do happen that people run into each other. So I, I didn't think it was universally um, sure. And I get how hyped, from a, a storyteller's that perspective, that is a pretty annoying, um, although I would say also kind <laughs> of scintillating prod to say this is, you know, the most remarkable story, but it's true. I do think that it's that line is often delivered by a storyteller who has, you know, who is going to be you know crafting the story based on something that they've learned or stumbled upon. I think there is a unique power to hearing that line told from someone who the story's actually about to some, right. you know, someone affected by it. And yes, I, you know, I certainly had plenty of examples of, you know, didn't, you know, when I was also living in New York city, running into people on opposite ends of town or months later on the same train, you know, th this type of serendipity happens uh, when, you know, when, I guess when you're living in a place with, with, with so many people constantly moving around, it seems impossible to run into the same person twice. And yet you do, but, to have to have these well actually i i don't know how to say this in like a non condescending way to these three brothers but i think that you know the these were not particularly um ambitious or intellectually exceptional or professionally 
uh, exceptional people. They're just kind of living their humdrum, relatively humdrum. You know, not to say that the lives they were living were bad or or that it's bad to be ordinary, but it just kind of seemed like you know they were just people. Do you know? dropping out of community college and and smoking marble cigarettes and then doing you know doing their thing in New York and looking to get whatever job they could and then all of a sudden something that is was unthinkable to them happened but and then they turn it three into, times well the other thing that is not particularly attractive about what they do is they milk their celebrity <laughs> the for restaurant. every oh. single minute they're isn't on. that every, so fitting to their character every show and it. you know the movie reminded me Tom of uh, the, the uh, two things that we've discussed on deep focus it reminded me of all of the movies full of that great footage of um uh either miss uh, uh, mr rogers neighborhood and also the um the the great 1950s and 60s footage of um of uh, uh, gore vidal yes. and, yeah because yeah. they this best mo- of enemies and uh well the, the, what makes this, right this movie gets me it's possible because there's so much great footage because they are That's on great. the phil donahue show okay. They they you know and they're making home movies. They're right, making of home them, movies. Like, they wear their the, hips in the same. They way. wear the same clothes, and <laughs> right. then they start a restaurant called Triplets. But what makes this movie what what helps you overcome your um, getting a little tired of how the how the boys are really um, exploiting this is is how the the movie pivots two or three times and gets deeper. It turns out to be not about them, although they're the they're the instrument of the intellectual journey. It it um, is how well they get along in the beginning, how they are identical, but how then they diverge and and um, uh, they choose different paths. And it explores the nature and nurture issue, and then it takes you to the Holocaust and to experimentation yeah. with um, with uh, with twins that the Nazis. So did. let's let's talk about so, that. And, and all that is beautifully. Uh, released information that's 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 exactly uh what i wanted to talk about so i've been you know expressing a lot of uh glee at the kind of first third of the movie but yeah this turns into a very very upsetting movie and with very explicit allusions to the holocaust you said that you thought the movie did an excellent job of delivering information after the second and third twists what about the structure of this documentary um worked worked for you even two times around i mean even when you knew uh what information was coming the second time around it sounds like you appreciated the way in which the filmmaker chris wardle and and his team um put it put it all together well yeah i mean structure wise the, the they're 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 twins and uh, uh the the movie goes for another 15 or 20 minutes before the third one emerges so that it, it but but what happens is um uh, I think the the movie next pivots on um, uh, the the three of them. There are, there are three or four different pivots, but but um, the, they want to discover their mother, and they and they do uh, they do uh, make contact with her, and they meet her in a bar, um, and she's an alcoholic, and she holds her liquor as well as these three boys are holding their liquor. And then she kind of disappears from the story. And there's a great scene where the adoptive parents confront the adoption agency. Oh, that's and the other. A... That's the other pivot. I'm sorry. That really is the structural pivot in the movie. Uh, they they find out that they're all placed by the Louise Wise agency, and then the parents go to the Louise Wise agency, and and there's uh, yeah, there's a kind of uh, the ante is up there because there's something nefarious happening. 
the parents go and as related by our narrators uh, Bobby and the and the other and David, and David right um the, one of the parents go they they're unsatisfied after the first meeting but one of the parents goes back on this rainy night which is one of the dramatic uh, reconstructions to retrieve his umbrella and they find that the um that the leaders of Louise Wise agency this very venerable uh agency that places well-to-do Jewish children um they're celebrating with a bottle of champagne as if the phrase that's used in the film is they've dodged a bullet. The bullet they've dodged is they did not reveal uh, it, uh, I, uh, the, the history of why this uh, triple adoption was done, uh, that it was, in fact, an experiment. And we only learned that in the next phase. And then... And then, um, and then we get... I mean, the to the filmmakers' credits, they're able to interview two of the researchers tangentially involved in this decade-long experiment, one who worked as a research assistant when he was, I think, 24 and actually visited these uh, triplets at their various homes, photographing them and applying various uh, mental and psychological and physical ability tests for months, you know, over over the course of 10 years, it sounds like. Uh, And then we also uh, get to hear from a former assistant to the lead psychiatrist who was not involved in this project, but but had some have some sh- thoughts to share on the right. the merits of this type of investigation, and, and I think the movie does a good job of, um, you know, maybe they're cherry picking quotes, but they certainly define a very very stark difference in sensibility and perspective between the scientists reflecting on this experiment, saying, you know, they were interested in in getting answers to a very important and longstanding scientific question. And so at the time, this wasn't a morally reprehensible thing to do. And, you know, a lot of great research came out of it. It's a shame that nothing was published. That perspective versus the children who participated in it, who are, you know, suffering to the nth degree because of the separation. Right. And and the, and the, the exemplar of that suffering is that Eddie, uh, one of the one of the brothers, kills himself. Right, and and so the movie really ha- by that time the movie has really shifted from the mystery of three brothers coming together and um, you know liking the same cigarettes and the same taste in women is the phrase they use in the same clothing. It it it, it pivots to the mystery of this study and the tragedy what, of it, and the tragedy of it. Why it was done, what the parameters were, because they're. They're intriguing things. All three of the boys were placed in families where the agency had previously placed um, uh, a girl, uh, I mean, a um, another child, older. So the mystery is, what was the design of the study? Um, the, uh, one lower class, one middle class, one upper class family with already an older adopted child. What were they trying to find out? Uh, and uh, why was the st- how extensive was the study? They, nobody even could quite figure out um, uh, how many people were involved. And to, to bring the movie close to home, it turns out that uh, it was the study was never published and it was sealed in, uh, you know, with the permission of Yale University's psychology department until 2066. I was talking with uh, the film archivist at Yale who also saw this movie and said that this is the only movie he's ever seen where you see someone looking at a Yale finding aid, like a Yale library finding aid on a screen and then just being shocked at the information that they find. It's not often that you see someone sitting at a desk and trying to search through Yale's library system uh, in a movie. Yeah, David Kelman, he's looking and it says 67 boxes. Uh, that's a lot of boxes. And um, yeah, it's, uh, and the movie really, 
uh, has no answers. The, the final pivot is that we, we, we visit with Lawrence Wright, the wonderful reporter for the New Yorker who discovered this as a story and, um, and, and wrote about it. And as a result of the, the writing about it, um, some information was released to the families, but highly redacted. Right. And he also delivers the, uh, the provocative final statement that, you know, we never know how many, or we don't know how many <clears throat> children were actually included in the study. And so it's possible that anyone could turn the corner one day and see, I mean, and see a carbon copy of themselves. And that's, you know, that, that idea certainly lingers, at least it lingered in the back of my mind throughout the movie, even before I heard Lawrence Wright articulate it as such, uh, that gets to the, I mean, the doppelganger is a, you know, a, a literary and filmic trope that goes back you know, decades in film and centuries in, in literature and that terrifying and exhilarating idea that there is another one of you existing out there that you're going to run into someday, I think is some something fun to think about, but also when it happens seems both ex- exciting and absolutely terrifying. Well, that's true. And so, and, and uh, here's my, here's my link to the other film. Uh, when I saw the movie for the second time, Suzanne, my wife, turned to me, and, when, and the first thing she said when the movie was over was, you know, because she's an editor with an editor's eye, a uh, scholar, and she said, why didn't the movie uh, interview the older siblings in any of the families? That none of the kids, in the, who, who, the step-sister uh, uh, of, of all three boys, they were available. The movie interviews the the wives and the aunts. Doesn't touch at all the the three children in the family, which you would think would have. Um, uh, and maybe they were unavailable. The movie doesn't answer that. Another another kind of question mark for me that hangs over the movie, and this is the link to Leave No Trace, is that uh, in the midsection there, where they the, where they discover their mother and they're disappointed in their mother, and actually they were very dismissive of the mother. And and because they've learned that their their birth apparently was from a one night stand, and to use the phrase of one of them is that when their mother was knocked up, but they express zero interest in tracing the father, and so the linkage between this film is that uh, you know the father remains a question mark that doesn't seem to make the the brothers curious, but in Leave No Trace, I was fascinated by who the mother was. And how long the mother uh, and I, I, I think even though movies don't have to have a lot of exposition, in fact, they're it's problematical if they do. I really wanted to know about that, that mother. So, yeah, that, that's the missing a missing parent. Yes, certainly. That is a great point about their indifference as presented by the movie towards finding out who their father was and even learning more about their mother. But I, I was moved by, you know, one of the brothers saying that we felt this imperative less strongly to get to know our mother, to have some kind of meaningful relationship to her mother, because we already had parents. You know, we're nineteen year old, nineteen years old, and we had very uh, meaningful connections with some, you know, with two people who had raised us our entire lives. Now, that doesn't answer every question about why they didn't pursue that uh, with with more uh, interest. But I, you know, I, I found that a convincing argument that they felt like they didn't, you know, they were they did have that loving parent like already in their lives whereas in leave no trace you know there's such absence in thomasine's uh uh relationship with her family she doesn't really 
and maybe she understands her dad as well as or as little as the the audience does um but certainly there's this this gap of where her her mother is or who her mother was i do think that one other connection is in the ptsd if we see the you know ex-marine isolating himself in part because of the trauma of whatever he experienced overseas uh here we have this you know pretty intense PTSD from the three the triplets being separated at birth that it seems to exist in you know in their very bodies and in their their minds from before they could even remember that there's something that has been and and getting you know I've written a few or an article about uh, some uh, Connecticut children who migrated from Central America who were separated from their parents at the border uh, uh, the U S Mexico border and you know the lead witness in that case uh, spoke for two hours to the reality of childhood PTSD of being separated from family members that's at an right. early age and how it lasts. And that's I think right. this movie shows that. That's right. The And in fact, the of the two kids uh, who were, were being housed up, uh, here in Connecticut that the Yale Law School Clinic uh, um, helped reunite with their parents. The the case that they made to the to the federal judge was a case based on a mental trauma being caused by the separation that 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 was so imperative that it would override the um, you know the, the 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 even the deadline uh, the July twenty sixth the is that today today that is today yeah and the, and that that trauma and yes I think some of the most e- e- interesting tidbits in in um, three identical strangers were the early descriptions of the. Uh, of the kids um, in all the families, they're you know they're banging their heads on their cribs and so on and so forth. And in terms of leakage of information, we find out only later in the movie that all three of the boys were uh, they had hospitalizations. There were you know beyond your garden variety uh, neurosis for being a teenager. They had mental illness issues. But so Tom, I think this movie, unlike Leave No Trace, really does come it, 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 among the many other things that it does. It really, I think, it really comes down um, uh, that, as you pointed out in your intro, that nature and nurture both play a role. But I think it says something very specific of the kind of parenting that's the preferred parenting, and and that is it's the it's the uh, parenting of um, of of of, of uh, Bubula. <laughs> the father of the what wonderful brief footage they have of Bubba to running around in a silly hat and full, you know, full, full of life. Right, love, these yeah. are home movies that are the, among the most revealing. And the um, so I should say this is the father, the first generation, or this is the immigrant father, working class. They own a, a dry goods store, or some, you know, some kind of store, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, a dry goods store, right? <laughs> uh, hardware he, store or something like that. And, and the and the line that they quote, uh, it, this was David's father, I yeah. believe. Mm-hmm. And the line that's quoted is that. When 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 he found out that his son David had these two uh, uh, these two uh, brothers, he said, "I have two more sons," and he horsed around with them. And that type of kind of loving engagement with your kid, as opposed to the disciplinarian uh, um, uh, raising of the uh, of Eddie, the one who winds of up Eddie who ended suicide. up killing yeah. himself. There's a message there, and it's and the movie's saying that that's the that, that the, uh, the the loving engaged kind of parenting is even superior to growing up in a more uh, materially well-to-do yeah. home, being the son of a doctor who was too busy and too really, uh, who cared, but who who just wasn't there. Man, this, this movie is really dense with messages yes, and it is. meaning and, sto- and plot twists and... Yeah, you know, I, I'm. I think I it think tells I, stories in spite of. I yeah. think it tells stories that it doesn't even think it's telling. Right, man. 
this uh, this movie I think is worthy of more. Even you know, I, I liked it after leaving it, and certainly had a lot to think about. But yeah, they they did a great job of telling a very complicated story in a very clear way. I mean, it's exciting, but also you understand. I had no trouble understanding every step of the way in this pretty convoluted tale of reunion and separation and all the rest. Um, I do want to I want to give you one minute because when I proposed seeing Three Identical Strangers last week, uh, you were certainly game for it, but you admitted <laughs> that when you are assigned a documentary, you don't often feel like you're watching a real movie. <laughs> That's uh, right. And uh, I, think, I think you're not alone. I mean, I think a lot of people that feel that way. And I think that this type of movie, in its, again, very straightforward presentation of, again, a fantastic story, um, feels more like reading a great Lawrence Wright article in the new yorker that's right as opposed to watching a leave no trace or a more experimental or a more you know filmic presentation of of information but i don't know do you feel like you're watching a movie when you watch three identical strangers well it's obviously a movie uh, by all by all indications of the fact that i paid my 850 to get in <laughs> and there was popcorn twice it's definitely a movie but but I, but if you think of uh, I, I mean my um experience of the movie they're very different experiences you when you watch this documentary uh, you are uh, you are really your, your brain is working to try to figure things out you're you know the, the what makes it successful is that is that the documentary filmmakers are one step ahead of their audience sometimes two steps or three steps as they give the information that's needed when when you watch leave no trace you're involved in a different kind of uh, relationship to the material. You're not working on it. You're not, uh, some part of you is trying to figure out their relationship, but it's, uh, it's, um, I think you're, you're, you're drawn into it in a, in a, in a different way. There is more, you're, you're more, it's more empathetic. It's more emotional as opposed to a kind of, um, um, mental aesthetic. And if cinema is primarily a, a visual medium, I think that, you know, fiction films like Leave No Trace certainly afford a greater level of experimentation and also um, ingenuity when crafting the images that are designed to evoke a kind of emotional response. I mean, when I think of Leave No Trace, I think of Ben Foster's character, you know, a, a high angle shot of him wandering into the wilderness, into this deep sea of green. That's right. You're not going to get that out of a documentary. But again, it takes a different visual sensibility to compile, you know, to, to we're, we're praising this movie's use of archival New York City footage from the early 80s, other TV footage or home movies. And it certainly takes a... Um, someone who is aware of the 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 impact of of combining you know different images and a uh, specific juxtaposition but right. a different you know different artistic but, sensibility but i thought that i, I thought for example I, I wanted to ask you about the um the the dramatizations of uh, that that are i mean the archival stuff is wonderful but i think the movie was was uncertain of how powerful it was i think could it could have saved a lot of money and lived without mm -hmm. these dramatizations because they were uh you know for they must have paid a lot of actors money and to have, have rain pouring down to dramatize the one of the fathers going back to see the secret celebration of the louise wise agency but that it just you know so there's a touch of fiction thrown yeah. into the documentary flow which i think is uh and it's used very sparsely i mean that may mm. be there maybe that's you know the oh, i thought the opening scene so we we get that in the opening scene when we have 
I, you know, we see the back, the curly hair. It's used, of someone a, it's going used a lot. That's in the first used in the front, third. and that I did not like. But I did, right. I did like the dramatization of the <laughs> champagne being popped, just because you know this is when this movie of a fantastic celebration of something, you know, this great serendipity turns into something that seems like out of. Like, a, you know, it goes from a Disney movie to a Bond movie, or in reality, it goes from this, like, wonderful tabloid story to something that is thematically related to the Holocaust. And, it's very dark at that yeah. point. That's right. Uh, so it sounds like two recommendations, again, oh, for abso- Three Identical Strangers. Absolutely. So Leave No Trace, Three Identical Strangers, pretty small movies, but I think definitely worth your time. And Alan, thank you as always for checking out these movies and coming on to chat about them. Pleasure. You can go to deepfocusradio.com to hear uh, over or nearly three years of uh, conversations about movies in New Haven. And we will be back next Thursday, uh, probably with an episode about the 48-hour film Project New Haven, which is happening this weekend. Uh, Check out our interview last week with Trish Clark for more info on that.